Thanks everyone for being here. My name is Peter Gettler. My honor and privilege to be president and CEO of the Cato Institute. Appreciate you all spending your evening with us. I got an email from a former member of Congress, one of the ones that I actually like. And he said to me, Peter, I hope you're well in these strange and troubled times. And I thought, strange and troubled times. The people of Ukraine have had a brutal war perpetrated on them for the last two years. Less than three weeks ago, we saw acts of unspeakable barbarity inflicted upon innocent civilians, including children in Israel. We live in a time when our government spends money at you know, trillions at a clip. And speaking of the government, it's so dysfunctional that we spent most of this month without a Speaker of the House. So yeah, it's strange and troubled times. I don't think it's a coincidence that this year's the 50th anniversary of that song that said, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. You shouldn't laugh, because these clowns and jokers want to exert all kinds of power over your lives in one way or another and to one extent or another. It's enough to make someone want to give up. And I have to admit, I visit with people sometimes who seem like they're about to give up. People tell me that we're doomed by the growth of the state. And God knows we have our challenges, but I think it's a strange thing to say that we're doomed when we all live in the best time to be alive as a human being. There are other people who have told me that it's impossible to reverse the growth of the state, which uh, it's a challenge, but I don't accept that it's impossible. But there's even a person who told me that liberty is over in America. Now, I don't blame people for thinking that they might want to give up. But if we all give up, liberty really is over in America. And a couple of weeks ago, I participated in a book club with the author, uh, Stacy Schiff. It was a book club about her outstanding <clears throat> biography of Samuel Adams called The Revolutionary a book I would commend to all of you. Samuel Adams was an incredible man. He was a brilliant strategist, an incredible communicator, and an indefatigable activist. And how fortunate are we that Samuel Adams and his heroic compatriots didn't fold their tents and give up. And I think sometimes when we look at the power of the state that's arrayed against us, we somehow think the challenges that we face are so much greater than the challenges the founding generation faced, that somehow the problems of the 18th century seem quaint by comparison. And I think it's the height of arrogance to believe that. You know, these guys didn't have an example of 
you know, limited self-government and protection of individual liberty. I mean, they virtually created the idea. They didn't have, you know, they lived in a time when life hadn't changed for millennia. And we have 250 years of evidence that free enterprise and free markets are the greatest engine of prosperity and the eradication of poverty that the world's ever known. And we have incredible means of technology at our disposal to communicate those facts and our ideas and our message. And most of all, to stand up and defend liberty in America, we don't have to risk our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor to do that. So I actually think it's arrogant if we believe that the challenges we face are greater than those faced you know, by the founding generation. I'm really pleased to report that the supporters of Cato, many of whom, many generous supporters are with us tonight, including Fred Young, one of our directors. In fact, it occurred to me, Fred, when I was coming here, Fred is uh, our second longest serving director. Right now, Howie Rich is the longest serving director. Howie has been on the board of Cato since God was a boy. <laughs> Fred, I guess God was maybe an adolescent when, when Fred joined. Um, but our generous supporters are not giving up. Driven by a sense of urgency about what's happening in our country and the risks to freedom in America and around the world, the people who support Cato are stepping up. Three years ago, the people who support Cato entrusted more resources to us in a single year than they ever had in our history. And two years ago, they did it again. And last year, they did it again. And again, I think it's driven by a sense of urgency, but also my colleagues and I take some sense of gratification that it's also been an affirmation of the strategic direction of the Institute and the purposefulness with which we're attempting to execute our mission. There is a strong sense of accountability at Cato, accountability for your personal performance, and also accountability to have a strategy and thoughtfulness to your work, to, to, to have an answer for why you're doing what you're doing and why is what you're doing going to help create the kind of change that we want. There is uh, greater engagement with policymakers, both on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch and in state legislatures around the country than I think there's ever been at Cato. And it's really hard to get things done on the Hill, as we've all seen. But it's not impossible. I've been incredibly impressed. Romina Baccia, who joined Cato a year ago to help spearhead, actually I think she spoke at our Chicago event last year. She has had tremendous success just raising the consciousness on the Hill of you know the stakes of our reckless spending. And she also has been pushing an idea to create a BRAC-like commission to try to, ins a, a device to help insulate politicians from the political fallout of the decisions we know they have to make in order to put our fiscal path on a, on a, a fiscal house on a sustainable path. And I think that's actually an idea that's got a good chance of passing Congress in the next several months. 
Um, it's not going to be in the form that we want. In fact, it'll probably be in a form that'll fail over the next couple of years. But it's going to give us another two years to socialize that idea and hopefully get it passed in a form that will actually work. We're reaching vast new audiences, particularly young people. I'm so inspired by our technology team. If you go to any of our digital platforms, um, you know, the, the guy who, our chief digital officer, who leads those efforts, he always tells his team, we're not benchmarking ourselves against other policy organizations. We're benching ourselves against the biggest media companies. We're benchmarking ourselves against, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post, which is awesome because, you know, the Washington Post has like 300 people working on their content management system, and we have two. But the fact that we're holding our own with them is pretty, is pretty awesome. Um, we passed out a, uh, a document tonight called The Vision of Liberty, which gives you a sense of what our overall strategic direction is and some of the elements of which I've just described. Our board has been, you know, very supportive of the direction of the organization. And in fact, our board has played a big role in the increase in our revenue over the last couple of years as they've encouraged us to accelerate the initiatives that we have underway and the strategic plan that we're executing. So I would encourage you to have a look at this document and any of my colleagues would be willing to answer questions, email, phone, or at, a, at an event about it. One of the themes in here is that yes, we live in a time of significant threats, but in the context of threats, there are often unseen opportunities. Last year at this event, I think I invoked, you know, one of my the most inspirational leaders of my lifetime, Margaret Thatcher. And you know, Margaret Thatcher is a great example of when there is a threat that seems to be a time of, con of, of crisis, those are often the times when the seeds of transformational change can be sown. The threat of bad policy, which we see in spades, creates an opportunity for fellow citizens to recognize that what we're doing is not working, and that the things that have worked in the past are some of the avenues that we've got to, to pursue in the future. And also, the, uh, the tribalism, the threat of polarization that we see infecting our countries in so many ways creates an opportunity that people do want to hear a sane voice. I all, when I tell this story, I always, uh, I never share the names of the organizations, but the president of Politico asked me to speak to a club that she's a member of. And after I spoke, a woman came up to me and said, you know, I spent 16 years on the Hill. The last few years, I was the general counsel for Speaker Boehner. And I always used to say, when I want to know what the left thinks, I read Think Tank X. And when I want to know what the right thinks, I read Think Tank Y. But when I want to know the truth, I read Cato. And the reputation for integrity and adherence to principle that Cato has built over four decades um, really does create a situation in which people will listen to our voice. Leslie Albanese, who's here, uh, runs our Sphere Education Initiatives, 
And uh, we now have over 6,000 teachers in our network after only four years. And we're gonna hit our five-year goal of 8,000 ahead of schedule early next year. And to me, that is um, uh, an indication that people are willing to listen to sane voices in, in you know, things that we, we share, common um, you know, framework of restoring civic culture, viewpoint diversity, or things that we get a hearing for. So thank you so much for your support. Um, it means a lot. Um, I don't think there's any more important investment than liberty. Our job is to make sure that there's no better investment in liberty than you can than make than, than Cato. It was after one of these events a few years ago when I was approached by the then president of Cato, John Allison, who uh, who's had the first conversation with me about uh, assuming the leadership of Cato, and I had dinner with my wife that night at our local Italian restaurant. I remember it because she was really bummed out. She did not want to move to Washington, D.C. And uh, I knew that I was going to miss out on a lot of skiing days, and I'll tell you, you know, that, that has, has exceeded my worst-case scenario. I had more skiing days that year than I have in the eight years since I've been at Cato. But uh, we sat there that night and we talked about it and we decided that, you know, this was the most important personal contribution we could make to advancing the things we care about. And we both agreed that we never wanted to be in a situation where our kids or grandkids said, we're screwed because mom and dad gave up. And so it doesn't matter how long the odds are or how big the challenges are, Myself, my colleagues at Cato, the generous people who make our mission possible are not giving up. And thank you so much for that perseverance and that support that makes it so much easier for us to do our job and execute our mission every day.